It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. On today's episode, we'll provide an update on Napoli's two big transfer stories, which are Arkadouz Milik and Kaladu Koulibaly. We'll also cover some news from Serie A. In part 2, we'll review Napoli's 2-0 win over Parma on Sunday. And in part 3, we'll recap the rest of match day 1. So starting with Napoli news, just when you thought this whole Arkadouzmi League saga had ended, the drama continues. The latest is the sale has been delayed and as a result, Roma have asked for a discount. The number I read was 5 million euros, which is significant when you consider that the price was supposed to be 18 million euros plus bonuses. There was some speculation that the delay was because of the fines from the mutiny. That makes absolutely no sense to me. The maximum fine for the mutiny was one month of salary. So if Milik's annual salary is 2.5 million euros, the max fine he would have been charged is 208,000 euros. And I don't even think his fine would have been for the entire month. Now, I know De Laurentiis is stubborn, but I don't think he would risk an 18 million euro sale because of 200,000 euros in unpaid fines. Another story is that the fine is not from the mutiny, but rather from a dispute over image rights. Apparently Milik owns a restaurant in Poland where he posted an advertisement of himself, which is a violation of his contract because the club owns his image rights. That one has a bit more merit to it, and it is very fitting of De Laurentiis. One million is still a fraction of the transfer fee, but this does appear to have become personal for De Laurentiis. The other story is that there is an issue with Malik's medical. Now, Roma issued an official statement on this, so let me read that first and then I'll give you my thoughts. 
It says, with regard to the rumors relating to the negotiation with Napoli for the possible transfer of Arkadush Milik, AS Roma denies any allegation of the state of the negotiations and even more on the physical condition of the player for whom it has deep esteem and respect. The club reiterates that it never and will never comment either in an official communication or in confidentiality on the health or fitness of a player registered with another club. Consequently, AS Roma rejects the attribution of any judgment on the player's physical condition. Now, a lot of people read this statement and took it to mean that Roma were confirming that Milik passed his medical, but that is not at all what it says. This was a very long legal way of saying no comment, and I'm sure based on how it's written, that it was at least in part written to avoid a lawsuit. But really what it says is that Roman never said that the deal was delayed because of the medicals and in fact, they would never comment on a player's medical publicly or in confidence, especially if that player belongs to another club. So I think there probably was something Roma didn't like in the medical, they just don't want the public to know that. They're still interested in Milik, but if they feel the risk of another knee injury is higher than they initially anticipated, then of course they want to reduce the price. Because of the delays with Milik, the transfer of Edin Dzeko to Juventus was delayed as well. Things escalated pretty quickly after that. On Monday morning, I saw a report that Juventus sporting director Fabio Paratici gave Roma and Napoli three days to sort things out with Milik before they moved on from Dzeko. That was immediately followed by rumors that Juventus were linked to Alvaro Morata at Atletico Madrid as Atleti had just signed Luis Suarez. And by about noon Eastern time, we had the here we go tweet from Fabrizio Romano confirming that Juve and Atleti had total agreement on Morata who would have his medicals in Torino on Tuesday. Now that does not necessarily mean that Milik will be staying put, it just means that Roma will have to find a new buyer for Edin Dzeko before they could buy Milik or otherwise Napoli will have to find a new buyer for Milik directly. So that's the situation with Arkadush Milik. There have also been some updates on the Kaladu Koulibaly situation. It's sounding more and more like Manchester City are moving on from Koulibaly. According to Fabrizio Romano, Sevilla have rejected an offer from Man City for Jules Koundé in the neighborhood of 55 to 60 million euros. It seems like PSG are once again the front runners to acquire Koulibaly, and according to the Telegraph, they're willing to pay 82 million euros for him. We'll close the Napoli segment with a couple of quick stories in the news. First, First, Lazio were apparently looking to sign former Napoli winger Jose Callejon, who still remains without a club, but Callejon has declined as he wants to play in Spain. And on Sunday, a number of players got together at the Villa Lucrezio and Posilipo to officially say farewell to Alan and his family. Moving on to Serie A, on Saturday, former referee and current referee designator Nicola Rizzoli spoke to Gazzetta dello Sport about the change in the interpretation of the handball rule, Last season, Serie A set a record with 187 penalties awarded, 57 of which were due to handball. Rizzoli said that there were too many light penalties given last season, citing as an example the penalty called against Martin Darun in Atalanta's 2-1 loss to Juventus. He added that we cannot take away from the defender the possibility of making an instinctive movement if the arm could no longer be retracted, it should not be punishable. The goal is to allow defenders not to play like penguins. I saw a lot of people on Twitter suggesting that Sampdoria should have been awarded a penalty after Bonazzoli shot hit Bonucci on the arm. Lassie's and penalty would have definitely been awarded, but with the new interpretation of the rule, it is not. We'll have to monitor to see whether 
This one is called consistently across the league. There was another non-call in the Milan game on Monday. Matteo Gabbia blocked a shot with his arms tucked into his chest and no call was made there either. Now that one's probably a bad example because even last season that one wouldn't have been called because he didn't make his body bigger. But for what it's worth, over the seven matches that were played so far in the first round, only one penalty was awarded, which was in the Milan match, and it wasn't for a handball, so that is a good sign. We'll close the news with an update on the current situation with fans in the stadiums. We saw over the weekend that nearly every match had a thousand fans in attendance. It's being left up to the regions to decide whether they allow the thousand fans in or not, and if they do, then it's up to the clubs to decide who gets the tickets. It seems most clubs are giving the tickets to sponsors, though Milan admirably invited doctors and medical workers to attend their match. The league and its clubs, of course, would like to have more than a 1,000 fans in attendance. Some reports are saying they want 20 to 25%, which seems a bit much to me. Things appear to be getting a little tense between Lega Serie A and everyone's favorite minister of sport, Vincenzo Spadafora. Lega Serie A president Paolo Dalpino took to the radio to say that football deserves respect. You have to plan things through dialogue. He added that in July, they used the best consultants around and wrote a 300-page study on how to reopen stadiums in total safety, but that no one from the government has ever called the league to address the topic. Lega Serie has consistently maintained all along that it does not make sense that grocery stores and discos and more recently schools can open, which all require buses and queues, and yet football stadiums cannot open even though they're big enough to properly social distance. Not only that, but football directly and indirectly employs 300,000 people and represents an important social phenomenon. Spadafora responded saying he was amazed by Dalpino's comments. He gave the typical political response where he avoided the question in a way and cited examples of how the government helped to restart last season. The only somewhat useful part of what I found to be a very long-winded answer was that FIGC President Gabriele Gravina was received by Prime Minister Conte and they agreed that stadiums will gradually start to reopen in October. But of course, again, like a good politician does, he gave himself a note by saying that all of that is subject to the pending analysis of the curves and the reopening of schools. He did say that he would be happy to receive Dalpino in the coming days, so if Dalpino was trying to be heard, then mission accomplished. So that will do for the news. In part 2, we'll recap Napoli's opening match against Parma. Napoli played Parma in the early time slot on Sunday, which for me was 6.30 in the morning, so here's how it went. It is the home side. Parma then to get the game underway. And uh, that is it. The end of the uh, first half. And it's been uh, a very cagey first half, as I said. 
Nothing really to put in the highlights real. No real chances on goal. Certainly no goals. It's a nil-nil after 45 minutes of play. It's Demp who's coming off. I'll see men. Is on. So, big summer signing. The biggest in Italian football so far. 70 million paid by Napoli to Lille for this uh, man, Lozano. Good ball towards Aussie man. Now Mertens! Dries Mertens gives Napoli the lead. The ball dropped kindly. Aussie man didn't quite get his first touch, but it was his movement that caused the uh, problem at the back. And Mertens finished off. Cool and calm into the bottom corner. Nice finish. From Dries Mertens, 1-0 Napoli then. Ooh, poor pass from Jacoponi. Lozano, Lozano on goal. And the tap-in from Insigne. Goal number two for Napoli. All stemming from a poor, poor pass at the back from Palmer. That's the final whistle here at the uh, Tardini Stadium. It finishes Parmenil, Napoli 2, routine win for the visitors. So as you heard, Napoli won 2-0 on goals from Dries Mertens and Lorenzo Insigne. Let's start the review with the lineups and formations. Fabio Liberani went with nearly the exact starting 11 that Gazzetta predicted, set up in a 4-3-1-2. Luigi Seppe started in goal. Simone Jacoponi and Bruno Alves started at centre-back. Giuseppe Pezzella started on the left and Matteo Darmian on the right. In the midfield, Gaston Brugman started in the middle with Hernani to his left and Alberto Grassi to his right. Yurai Kuchka played in the Trequartista behind Andreas Cornelius and Roberto Inglese. Cornelius was really the only surprise for me. I personally thought that Jan Caramo would be more dangerous on the counter-attack than Cornelius, but Liverani preferred the quality of Cornelius over the pace of Caramo. Gattuso had a few surprises in his starting 11 compared to what we had predicted. First, David Ospina got the start over Alex Meret. The second was Elcid Cusaid starting over Mario Rui. He played with Kalidou Koulibaly, Costas Manolas, and Giovanni Di Lorenzo on the back line. Diego Deme played as a regista behind Piotr Zelinski and Fabian Ruiz in the midfield. The third surprise for me was a pleasant one, which was Chucky Lozano playing on the right wing over Matteo Politano. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing, wearing the captain's armband, of course. Andres Merton started in the middle, which wasn't a shock for me that he didn't start Osimen. So those were the starting lineups. This match was played in front of about a thousand fans at the Tardini. I've been fine with watching matches being played behind closed doors. I know a lot of people really don't like it. But I must admit, it was nice to hear the sounds of the fans. There was a play in the second half where Inglese went down and the foul wasn't given, and you could hear the jeers from the fans, which was actually nice to hear. Padma's new owner and president, Kyle Kraus, was among those in attendance. I know Napoli Twitter had a good laugh at the Chow Iowa sign his entourage posted. There wasn't a ton of excitement in the first half. Napoli started out a little shaky. We immediately saw the team drop into the 4-1-4-1 on defense, so Gattuso's version of Catanacho remains. I was a little surprised to see that Parma were the more positive side in the opening 10 minutes, but that was also because Napoli were forcing their passes a little bit and conceding possession a little cheaply. But they settled in after that. The passing was much sharper and the movement off the ball 
gave the attack a nice fluidity. What was lacking though was that final decisive ball. Napoli were clearly looking to pick out Lozano's diagonal run on the right wing, but the service was really poor. Nearly side really created anything in the first half. Now, that was partly because both sides defended really well in the first half as well. Parma pressed high and marked tightly, which forced mistakes and made it difficult for Napoli to build up in the attack. I think Parma fans might be a bit disappointed that their team played quite similarly under Liberani, who's typically a more offensive-minded coach, as they did under Roberto Diversa. For Napoli, Manolas and especially Koulibaly had excellent matches. I don't see any issue with their chemistry. I hope the Premier League experts watch this match because 80 million euros for Koulibaly is probably a discount. Literally nothing got past him in this match. He times his slide tackles perfectly. We saw that again in the first half with the tackle he made on Cornelius. Even when he tripped over the ball, he still managed to play an excellent pass from his knees to Demme. Gattuso commented on Koulibaly after the match. He said he's a champion and a professional. He's one of the strongest defenders in the world. He has always given me great availability. I would be very sorry to lose him, but sometimes the numbers are important. Napoli have to do something. Selfishly, if he stays, I'm happy. The second half started with more of the same, and you know it was only a matter of time before Victor Osman made an appearance, which he did in the 62nd minute. This was something we talked about in the preview, which was if Napoli were behind or level, then Gattuso would bring in Osman and switch to the 4-2-3-1 we saw in the friendlies to bolster the attack, and that's exactly what Gattuso did. I was a little surprised to see Osman replace Diego Demme instead of Fabiano Zielinski, as neither of them were having a great match. After the match, I thought about this, and here's why I think Gattuso did this. First, Demme was on a yellow, so you don't want to risk getting a second yellow. Now, our good friend Joey Cacavalla pointed out on Twitter that he could have replaced one of Fabian or Zilu with Osman and then replaced Demme with Lobotka. I tend to agree with that, but I know Lobotka had picked up a knock in training which kept him out of the friendly against Pescara, so I wonder if that had anything to do with it. The other reason is that Parma were really struggling to create anything in attack, and with how Koulibaly and Manolas were playing, Gattuso was probably more comfortable taking that chance. Whatever the reason though, the complexion of the game completely changed after Osimhen came on. The combination of his pace and extra attacker really stretched Parma's back line. That was key because in the first half, Parma really clogged up the midfield. Osimhen wasn't directly involved in the goals, but his presence made a big difference. Patrick Taroni, who called the match, at least on the international feed for the zone, put it eloquently when he said, Certainly Osman has had a major impact since coming on, not because he's created lots of chances or had lots of chances on goal, but just his unpredictability has given Napoli something else, a little bit of an edge, and that's certainly shown. The minute Osman came on, Napoli scored the opening goal of the match. Chucky Lozano played a cross into the box intended for Osimhen. Jacoponi won the header but the ball fell kindly for Mertens and he calmly picked his corner. With that goal, Mertens extended his record of most goals for Napoli to 126. That's also Mertens' 94th goal in Serie A which puts him only 6 back of Matic Hamsik for most goals scored for Napoli in Serie A in the current format. Antonio Voyak scored 102. After that goal, Osman was involved in a number of chances. In the 67th minute, he played a clever back heel to Insigne at the top of the box, but his bending shot hit the upright and stayed out. Two minutes later, Di Lorenzo had a chance after Osman laid the ball off to him at the top of the box. Moments later, Osman nearly flicked in off of Insigne's cross, which ended up just out of reach of Lozano, but wide of the goal. Jacoponi was largely to blame on the second goal as well. 
His pass intended for Petzela was too weak, which allowed Lozano to intercept and counter. Lozano took the shot, which Sepid didn't handle very well, leaving a juicy rebound for Insigne to smash into the empty goal. I saw a lot of people on Twitter saying Lozano should have passed to Osimhen there. When I watched it again, you see that Lozano did look up, but Jacoponi had blocked the passing lane, which forced Lozano to go wide, and if he passed at that point, Osimhen was likely in an offside position, so I was fine with the decision to shoot. I thought Lozano had a very good match, especially in the second half. He was involved in both goals. He didn't have a bad first half either, just the quality of the passes to him was poor. Finally, in the 80th minute, Osimhen had a shot of his own that missed the far post, but this chance showed exactly what he's capable of. Di Lorenzo played a through ball into space, and Osimhen received the pass in full sprint, dragging his shot just wide. After the match, both Insigne and Gattuso commented on Osimhen's play. Insigne said he impressed not only me, but the whole group. When he attacks, the depth is devastating, as we have seen today. He reminds me a little of Cavani for how he attacks the depth. He will give us a hand because he brings something different than me and Dries. Then with his speed, it can be important. Advice? We told him to rest assured he is young, he has a lot of potential, he will have to grow, and we will help him. Gattuso said he has an edge. I was struck by his seriousness. He doesn't forget where he left and the sacrifices he's made. He built himself, and congratulations to him for his desire. He is a young boy with the head of a 40-year-old. I hope he doesn't make mistakes and doesn't change his attitude. The last thing I want to talk about is something I tweeted about, which is that the so-called cultural experts out there can stop saying that Gattuso can use some work on his tactics. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you know that I listen to a lot of other podcasts as well, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that Gattuso has done a great job with the players to make them work hard and play disciplined, but he needs to work on his tactics. As we've become accustomed to, Gattuso started this match in the 4-3-3 but defended in the 4-1-4-1, but then when we needed to bolster the attack, he brought in Osimhen and switched to the 4-2-3-1, and then the part that surprised me the most was he brought in Petania for the final minutes of the match to play alongside Osimhen in what looked like a 4-4-2. So I think we can stop saying that Gattuso needs to improve his tactics. So that will do for part 2, and part 3 will recap the rest of match day 1. In part 3, we're going to recap the rest of the action in match day 1. Three matches have been deferred until September 30th. Those matches are Inter Benevento because Inter played in the Europa League final, Atalanta Lazio because Atalanta played in the Champions League semi-final, and Spezia Udinese because Spezia played in the final of the Serie B promotion playoff, which of course they won. Fiorentina and Torino kicked off the Serie A campaign on Saturday at the Artemio Franchi, Fiorentina won this match 1-0 on a 78th minute goal by Gaetano Castrovilli, which I thought was well deserved. Castrovilli was arguably Fiorentina's best player in this one. There were no doubts about who was Torino's best player, that was goalkeeper Salvatore Sirigu. He made a number of big saves in this match. He stopped Christian Kuame's header in the 43rd minute. The rebound came off Christian Ansaldi, but he stopped that as well. In added time, he made his best save of the match on another Kuame header, 
that seemed destined for the bottom corner, but Sirigu somehow kept it out. He made yet another save on Kwame early in the second half, and Kwame probably should have had two or three goals in this match. He also missed an open header in the 18th minute. Sirigu made another nice diving save on Patrick Cutrone in the 90th minute to keep Torino in it, but by that point, they had run out of gas anyhow. Even though Fiorentina controlled the match from start to finish, it did feel like it was going to finish as a nil-nil draw. There were so many stoppages in play that the match didn't have a whole lot of rhythm to it. Andrea Bellotti seemed like he had a target on his back. It seemed every time he touched the ball, he was fouled, to the point where I was convinced that Nikola Milenkovic was going to be shown a second yellow at some point. Torino really didn't create anything offensively. Their best chance of the match came in the second half after Frank Ribéry played his back pass straight to Simone Zaza. That started the counterattack, and Zaza had Bellotti open at the top of the box, but his pass was way too heavy and nothing came of it. For Fiorentina, I think Federico Chiesa continues to be used out of place as a right wing back, but I thought he actually had a very good match nonetheless. His shooting lacks accuracy, but when he makes those runs on the right wing and shoots to the far post, there's always the opportunity to make the run to the back post as Castrovilli did on the goal. It was a slow match, but with the additions of Bonaventura, Biragi, and Lirola, Fiorentina have plenty of depth and should be competitive this year. The second match of the week was Roma against Verona. Ivan Juric was not on the touchline after he was suspended for a match after Verona's final match of last season against Genoa. Roma started with a three-man back line that they had success with after the restart. Curiously, Fonseca started Brian Cristante at center back instead of new signing Marash Kumbula against his former club. In the end, it was a good decision though. The match finished nil-nil and Cristante actually played well. The problem for Roma was not in the defense, but rather in the attack. Because of the delays in the Arkadouche Milik transfer, Zeko suited up but was never going to play in this match. Roma had plenty of scoring opportunities but couldn't finish. I thought Spinazzola was their best player. He was involved in almost all of Roma's opportunities. In the 25th minute, Spinazzola made an excellent run on the left wing before cutting the ball back to Henrik Mkhitaryan in front of the goal, but the Armenian missed the target. About 10 minutes later, Spinazzola made an identical run, this time cutting the ball back for new signing Pedro, and he too missed the mark. You couldn't help but wonder if Eden Zeko would have finished those opportunities had he been playing. I suppose you could wonder if Adek Milik would have converted one of those chances too, but I think I know what most Napoli Tifosi feel about that. In the 38th minute, Silvestri made an excellent save on Mkhitaryan, though I suspect if he scored, VAR would have ruled that goal out for offside. And then a minute after that, Spinazzola made a piercing run into the box, but Mertzatin, who Roma included in the deal for Kumbula, made an excellent block on the play. Finally, in the 85th minute, Spinazzola smashed a volley off the crossbar. Not only did Roma not have a true striker, but they also don't really have an impact player that they can bring in off the bench. The best they could do was bring in Gonzalo Villar, but that's the reality of Roma's financial situation. Ironically, Verona probably felt like they could have won this match as well, but they too were unable to finish. In the 28th minute, new signing Lubomir Tupta had an open shot in front of goal, but he rushed his shot and side-footed it straight at Mirante. Just before the break, Mirante made an excellent save on another new signing, Adrian Temez, deflecting his shot off the bar and out. Samuel Di Carmina missed a wide-open header in the 66th minute, and Federico Di Marco nearly stole the win in the 82nd minute. His shot hit the underside of the bar and spun into the upright but stayed out. In the end, the draw was probably a fair result, at least on the basis of how the match was played, but after the match, we learned that Amadou Diawara was not registered on the squad because last season he was 22, 
and didn't need to be registered, but he turned 23 in July, and therefore he should have been registered. That's led to speculation that Roma could be handed a 3-0 loss, as happened to Sassuolo in 2016 when they did not include Antonino Ragusa in the squad against Pescara and were handed a 3-0 loss there. The big match on Sunday was Juventus against Sampdoria, which was the final match of the day. This was the eagerly awaited debut of Andrea Pirlo as coach of Juventus. I was a little confused by Juve's formation. On their official Twitter account, they posted a graphic showing they were lining up in a 5-4-1, but on the broadcast, they displayed a 3-5-2. In the end, the formation on paper didn't really matter because of all the movement. I'll be curious to see how Pirlo lines up when Juventus has more players available. Dybala was out of this one due to injury. Before the match, Juve's sporting director Fabio Paratici confirmed that Luis Suarez will not be joining Juventus, and as we talked about in part 1, it looks like they will go after Alvaro Morata instead. The surprise selection was Gianluca Fravota on the left side over Pellegrini and De Chilio, but he actually played quite well. In terms of style of play, Pirlo said this summer that when Juve don't have the ball, they will press to win back possession as quickly as possible, and that's exactly what they did. Weston McKinney was especially aggressive in that regard. It's early stages, but McKinney appears to be a very shrewd signing. On the ball, the days of pragmatic football Juventus are no longer. Juve played very positive, attractive football, making quick passes, lots of give and goes, and excellent movement off the ball. As it turns out, all Juve needed to do to play with the pace that Sadi wanted to play with was get rid of Sadi himself. In the end, Juventus won this match quite comfortably on goals by Kulusevski, Bonucci, and Ronaldo. We picked Sampdoria to finish just outside the relegation zone, so you probably need to take this performance with a grain of salt, but in this match, Juve looked exponentially better than they did last season. In addition to the talented players they already have in Ronaldo, Dybala, Bentancourt, De Ligt, Bonucci, and Chiellini, they've now added McKenney, who we already mentioned, and Kulusevski, who took only 13 minutes to score in his debut, and if that's not enough, even the players who struggled last season are now playing well. Adrian Rabiot found his form after the restart and has carried that over into this season, and the oft-injured Aaron Ramsey probably had his best performance in a Juventus shirt in this match. That said, Juve did have a few vulnerable moments at the back that perhaps some of the stronger sides would have taken advantage of, so while I think that Juventus are the favorites to win yet another Scudetto, I remain hopeful that we will have a competitive Serie A campaign. Moving on, Sassuolo drew Cagliari 1-1, which was a bit of an unfair result. Sassuolo were without Jeremy Boga, who can't seem to shake off the coronavirus. Sassuolo dominated this match, but they looked like they could have used Boga's ability to finish. Sassuolo had chance after chance in the first half, but couldn't score. Locatelli had a shot blocked in the opening minute. On the ensuing corner kick, Berardi hit a volley from the top of the box that dipped across the goal, bounced short of the byline, but just missed wide. Chicho Caputo had a shot from a tight angle on the right side of the box, but it went wide as well. Haraslin had a couple of chances, his left-footed shot in the 30th minute went over the bar, and just before the break, Alessio Cranio did really well to stop Haraslin's downward header from close range. Cagliari didn't really have a chance until just before the break, and then they got two chances. Nandes and Simeone both came close to scoring, but Nandes's shot went over the bar and Simeone's header just missed the far post. The second half was quite similar where Sassuolo continued to dominate the play, and Cagliari only had one or two real chances in the span of a few minutes, and they actually scored both of them. On the first, Nandes, who just doesn't stop running, carried upfield before picking out Jao Pedro on the left side. He played a perfect cross to Simeone and he made no mistake on the header. 
Simeone scored again only a few minutes later after Vlad Krishis played the ball straight to Nandes in front of his own box. Nandes played the ball through to Simeone who beat Consili. However, VAR reviewed the goal and found that Simeone was a fraction offside and the goal was reversed. Sassuolo scored a beautiful equalizer in the 87th minute. Mehdi Burabia put his free kick up and over the wall and into the top corner. That made the score 1-1, which is how that one ended. The other match on Sunday was Genoa against newly promoted Crotone. Genoa won this match 4-1, but I wouldn't take too much away from that. In our preview, we had Genoa finishing near the bottom of the table, but avoiding relegation. To me, this match shows that Crotone are going to have a very difficult season. And I know it's only the first match, but if they're losing by a margin like this to a team that should be in the bottom of the table, then I think you have to expect Crotone to be relegated when it's all said and done. You do have to give Genoa credit though, in order to survive you have to beat the lower table clubs, so it was important to pick up the 3 points here. Goran Pandev showed that he still got it, he played the switch which was the second pass that eventually led to the Destro goal. Then he scored a beautiful goal himself, he timed his run perfectly, waited patiently for Crotone keeper Alex Cordes to go down, then calmly chipped over him. Davide Zapacosta scored the 3rd with a nice run to set up his right foot and an even nicer finish into the bottom corner. Marco Piacca scored the 4th, he picked the far post. A couple of players to keep an eye on this season for Crotone are Emmanuel Riviere, he scored the only goal for them, and Simi who won the Serie B Capocannoniere last season with Crotone and that was a big reason why they were promoted. The final match of the week was Milan against Bologna on Monday. The oldest man on the pitch stole the show. Zlatan Ibrahimovic scored a beautiful header in the first half on an excellent cross from Teo Hernandez and he scored from the penalty spot in the second half. Even the penalty was very well taken. It's rare these days that you see a player go for the top corner, but he'll be happy he did because Skorupski guessed right but went low. Ibrahimovic had a number of chances beyond the two goals as well. That penalty kick proved to be rather important as Donnarumma needed to make a number of quality saves in the final 10 minutes, first on Skovolsin, then on Sansone, and then on Tomiyasu, and in the 86th minute Santander's shot deflected off of Ibrahimovic and hit the bar. We also got to see the debut of a couple of new faces at Milan. Brahim Diaz replaced Hakan Chawanoglu in the 71st minute and he was very impressive. The long-awaited debut of Sandro Tonali came in the 77th minute after he replaced Frank Kessie. I have to say he did look a little bit off but that's understandable in his first match for his boyhood club. Alexis Salamakers was another good substitute for Pioli, Samu Cassier who was dreadful in the first half and was on a yellow and Salamakers had a noticeable impact on the right wing when he came in. So all in all it was a solid performance for Milan and Pioli who maintained the strong form that they showed after the restart last season. So that will do it for this episode, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5 star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5 or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. We'll be back later in the week to preview Napoli's second match of the season which is against Genoa, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. I say, 
Lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.